0: chapter 2 you know, when you you get past verse 18 of chapter 1 into chapter 2 chapter 3 you're dealing uh, Paul is dealing with uh, the very nature of sinful man he's dealt with the Gentiles today he begins to deal a little more in depth with Jews Uh, these are Jewish Christians he's talking about in particular the church at Rome was made up of both Gentile and Jewish Christians, Paul had not yet visited it he would at some point this was written probably in the mid 50's and uh, they, they're a church that's like our church, and like most churches, made up of all types of people, uh, all types of issues, all types of things going on. And in the midst of all of that, we need clarity on how we ought to live our Christian life. And we need clarity on the things um, we need to understand, and especially sometimes, I think, when uh, the area of sin. And, uh, you know, we all know we're sinners but we don't all necessarily like to admit it on a regular basis. That sin is still part of our life. Paul, in the end of chapter 2, we're going to do the first part of chapter 3, is basically dealing with certain questions that have maybe have been asked. He's dealing with, some say, an imaginary uh, provocateur who's asking questions. Uh, Some say, well, these are probably things that Paul used to say, that Paul, before he became a believer, would have said to the Jews, to the Christians, so verse 17 says this, If you bear the name Jew and rely upon the law and boast in God. and The word Jew, it comes from, the a derivative from Judah, uh, one of the sons of uh, Jacob. It means to praise. But if you bear the name Jew and rely upon the law and boast in God. In other words, you rely upon the law to save you. you rely upon the law to guide you. You boast in the things of God. And you know his will and you prove of the things that are essential because you've been instructed out of the law. In other words, you've grown up, you've been taught what's important, you know that you're you try to keep it, even as a follower of Christ, you you try to do all the things you ought to do. And you're confident that you yourself are a guide to the blind and a light to those who are in darkness. In other words, you you consider yourself someone whose moral example ought to be followed, as many Jews did When when you encounter Jesus in the Gospels. He's constantly dealing with the Pharisees. And uh, the Pharisees and scribes, and they think of themselves as examples of how one ought to live. Uh, They saw themselves that way. Uh, Even as Christians, we think of that. We try to be uh, examples. Uh, You know, it's not always easy. I think about that in my own life. You know, the the moral example, the example I'm supposed to set. And I sometimes don't really want to have to do all that. Uh, I'd rather at times not be an example to anybody. It's safer that way. But sometimes we're all called to that, and we think in those terms. You are, in verse 20, a corrector of the foolish. I've met many people who think that's their task. You're a teacher of the immature. You have the law, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and of the truth. So you we have the law, uh, that, which is to the Jew, was in you know, the Old Testament scriptures, especially the first five books. It is the truth. It's God revealing himself to us. You have all of this. Now, you therefore, you teach another. Do you not teach yourself? So this is the question, he yes, you teach others, but do you teach yourself? Now, if you remember a couple of weeks ago dealing with the Gentiles, Paul dealt with the idea of judging. You judge other people, do you stand in the judgment yourself? He was warning the Gentile believers that they needed to be careful of being judgmental, especially against other Gentiles who are not believers because of what they once stood under, the condemnation they stood under. Gentiles who are without Christ, judge other people, and because they judge other people, that's how they are judged. You remember we talked about why, why does this group of people or why, why does God hold someone accountable who's never heard you know, the scriptures, who's never heard of Christ? Because they have a law unto themselves. They judge each other by the law they have, and they're all guilty of breaking that. You could look at the Jews and say what the Jews have is they have the revealed word of God. They have a tremendous advantage. They have the law of God. But the Jews, and they, and they, and they practice the law and they teach the law, they do these things. Paul asked his questions. Just like he would ask of the Gentiles, do they judge others? To the Jew, he would simply say, you teach others, do you not teach yourself? You preach that no one should steal, but do you steal? That's the question. You preach... Or say in verse 22, no one should commit adultery. Do you commit adultery? It doesn't even have to be uh, the adultery according to the law. I mean, think about what Christ said hatred, I mean, uh, lust in your heart is basically an act of adultery. And so he's just saying, are you using the same standard, the same measures? He said, you, uh, you say, don't, uh, you abhor of idols, but yet do you rob temples? You, you hate the idea of idols, but do you go to temples and rob them? The idea is simply that, you know, Jews were supposed to stay away from pagan temples. But there were some who would go into the temples and, and and steal things, either act of destruction, or they would, you know, they would cause uh, some type of, of vandalism, you know, just like people do today. What he's saying to them is simply this: you have a standard that you apply to people, but do you apply that to yourself? Now, this is very similar to what Jesus did with the Pharisees, who constantly held people to a standard that they themselves would would never meet. In uh, the Sermon on the Mount, as Christ began it, he said your righteousness has to surpass that of the Pharisees. In other words, it's not that you have to be more righteous than them. You just have to have a different kind of righteousness. And he goes to describe in chapter 5 certain things the Pharisees would teach, and yet they would not live up to that. You've heard it said, do not commit a murder. I said, don't hate anybody. Because the Pharisees were certainly guilty of a hatred and animosity. You've heard, don't commit adultery. I said, don't lust. So he would, he, would, he, he would go on to describe these things that they were guilty of, even though they thought that they were leading a certain type of life. And so he says this in verse 23, You boast in the law, though you are breaking of the law. If you're doing that, do you dishonor God? For the name of the God is blasphemy among the Gentiles because of you, which is what is written. So here's what he's saying to them. You have this strict standard that you impose on other people, and you pull that standard out of the Old Testament, we would say, out of Scripture. You pull that standard out of God's word he gave you. And there's, there's, some tr- and there's truth to that standard. There's a standard there. You keep applying that standard to other people, but you do not apply it to yourself. And because of that, basically, you have become a, a brilliant act. Of, it's an act of blasphemy you are, you are, in essence, blaspheming God because you're holding people to a standard you don't keep. And so people look at you and say, okay, this is how, this is how people are supposed to live. They teach us this is what the, the law of God says, and they don't apply the law. And they look at the whole thing as utter hypocrisy. I would probably share, you know, that as we live in a world today, what you see here, in essence, is Paul dealing with a very strict type of legalism. Legalism has always been a problem within the Christian community, and it, it really it is today too. And legalism changes over time, it changes over the years. We all find our types of legalism. I, I am remembered whenever I deal with this subject of my time in Laredo, there was a lady who was a, a part of our, our church there. Um, we'll call her Margaret because that was her name. <laughs> and uh, I think it's good to call her that. I'm not, if she's. Still alive, I don't think she is alive. Well, she may be. I don't know if the Lord wanted her. I don't think the devil did either, so she still may be kicking. She was the epitome of the self-righteous, hypocritical Christian. Uh, when she would walk up to our office, and, and anybody saw her, they'd say, Margaret's coming, and people would scatter and hide. I would, I would uh, shut my door and lock it, and uh, I would tell... <laughs> anybody, if she steps foot in my door, you better have your resignation ready because you're walking out the door with her. Don't let her near me. Um, and this was the thing. She was the single most critical, condescending person I ever met of other people. She constantly criticized anyone and everyone, and it was just the snarkiest, mean stuff. And and she would simply and, and, and I'm not kidding, when she would talk about how Good she was doing certain things and how bad they were. And, and, and all I could think of was just, my gosh, you're the worst example, or maybe the best example I've ever seen, of a legalistic, hypocritical, self-righteous Christian. I would she's one of those people that I, I like when you go out in public, please don't tell people you go to our church. We all have, every pastor has people like, don't. Don't tell anyone you come to our church. We all have them. Because of that, and that's the main reason. One of the problems that we have faced and and, and we face today is that people see the church as hypocritical. And I'm not, and I don't, you know, and the reasons for doing it vary, but there is an element of truth that Christian faith has at times in America, instead of being what the Christian faith is supposed to be which is a share of the gospel, a lover of people, helping people through sin, point out sin. It's not that. Too often we have moved from being light in the midst of darkness to being a self-righteous regulatory agency who tell people, this is how you have to live. We still do it sometimes. And I like and all that. I, I remember when I first started preaching without a pulpit. <laughs> a couple of guys just got bent out of shape. There were actually a couple of deacons. Uh, and one of them said... Where's he going to put his Bible? I said, uh, you know, that's a good question. I'll put it behind me. What's he going to pound on? What's he going to hit? I said, probably you if you keep this up. I said, you know, I've done this all the time, and I tell people, you can, you can have someone dressed in a coat and tie, look nice. Maybe not. Just because you're wearing a coat and tie doesn't mean you look nice. i to be honest. I've seen people in a coat and tie. Some of you better not. And you don't you don't really look that good. You're better off not wearing it. You can have someone stand behind the pulpit and open up the King James Bible, and read it and, and preach the most boring, monotonous sermons you've ever heard. Just people just make your skin crawl. Or you could have somebody, whoever it might be, who shares the gospel the way it was written, who tells you the truth whoever it may be, and not do those things and dress and act differently. My question simply is, who would you rather have and who's more effective? And what I'm saying is sometimes in our life, in all aspects, we become so rigid, we forget what matters. Do you remember one of the fascinating things Jesus did? Is Jesus would never fast and it drove the Pharisees nuts. And they came to him and said, The Pharisees fast, the disciples of John the Baptist fast, your disciples don't fast. Why? And he simply said, Because when you're at a wedding, the, the bridegroom, I mean the the, the groomsman of the bridegroom, they don't fast, they celebrate. Why should my guys fast when we're celebrating? The point of all that was simply this. You guys are so caught up in being legalistic and following the rules that you really don't get the point. I'm in your presence. And one of the dangers we face, and I have to be so careful of this, so we not become legalistic. I I don't want to go to the other extreme, you know, I try not to and at work, I have a tendency to be a little bit legalistic, because I'm like, this is right, this is wrong, this is how you do it, blah, 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 blah. But I've learned over the years, and maybe just getting a little bit older. And I, I was at the, I was in the Miranda office today in the music suites. So I was talking to Troy and James about some budget stuff. And I look, Mike has this full-length mirror. Mike, I have no idea what he had that mirror. And I'm looking at myself. I'm like, where in the world did the years go? My my goodness, just, uh, I just my goodness. I look so much older. But with that, I think, comes an understanding of what really matters and what doesn't. And I've learned this as a pastor. Some of the things that I used to think matter and some of the things my church members think matter simply don't matter. Now, I don't want any hopping from the music, guys, Brian. That matters, okay? That's just me. But (laughs) we've got to understand what matters and what doesn't matter to God and not to us. Because here's why. We're going to drive people away. We're going to drive people away if we're not careful. Now, do we have to have standards? Yes, but they have to be in line with Scripture. What matters to God is what matters to us. And if, it, if, I, look, if I look through Scripture and what I'm talking and what, what people are confronting me with doesn't seem to matter to God, then maybe it shouldn't matter to me. There's still a few things I'm legalistic about. People who know me well know what they are. But then he goes to the next thing in verse 25. and This is interesting also. For indeed, he says, he goes circumcision. He is bringing, circumcision is a value if you practice the law. So if you're a part of the law, then you need to be circumcised. In other words, there was a, there were, he, Paul dealt with this. Because he dealt with it in Galatians. People wanting Christians to have to be circumcised and be a part of the law. Okay. And he says, if you're going to do it, fine. But you've got to keep all of it. Because obviously Gentiles converting didn't have to be circumcised. But if you're going to do that, that's fine. But if you're transgressor of the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. So he says this. If you don't keep the law, then your circumcision is no value. Your circumcision does not save you. It's not the circumcision that makes you Jewish. It is a circumcision that was a sign of your Commitment to God as a Jew. But it and it alone didn't make you Jewish. So, if the uncircumcised man, the Gentile, keeps the requirements of the law, this is a hypothetical, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? And if he who is physically uncircumcised, if he keeps the law, will he not be judged? Will he not judge you who, having the letter of the law and circumcision, are transgressors of the law? In other words, he's saying this. If someone who's a Gentile, but he's not circumcised, keeps the law, and you guys who are circumcised don't keep the law, who's going to judge who? The one who is circumcised or the one who actually keeps the law? Well, it's the one who keeps the law. Verse 28 says, for he is not a Jew he is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. In other words, circumcision is an act of the flesh, but that's not the most important part of circumcision. It's what it represents. So he says, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly and circumcision is that which is of the heart by the spirit and not by the letter and his praise is not from men but from God. In other words what marks one out as a true follower of God is not what happens to one on the outside. It is the conversion that has happened on the inside. Now he's not saying the Gentiles are going to keep the law. He's not saying it's a hypothetical but if they were to that's the whole point. Later on in this whole discussion, he's going to talk about who is was the true child of Abraham. And it's not the one who was born Jewish, but the one who was the follower of Christ. Christ said the same thing. He said, I can raise up stones to be children of Abraham. The true children of Abraham are those who have faith in me. In other words... The children of God, those who are truly a part of God's kingdom set apart from God, are those who have faith in Christ. There's an inward recognition, not simply an outward one. So let's bring that over to today. And I remember a conversation I've had with someone. I've had this several times, numerous times over the years. But I was talking to someone, and we were talking about his faith, and he was not really living a life, and he was not really you know, going to church, which doesn't make you or not make you a Christian, but he made this comment. I said, you know, tell me about your faith. He says, well, I know I'm a Christian because I was baptized when I was eight. And I'm like, well, okay. And so some people have the mindset, I think, that baptism means you're saved. Now, as a Baptist who believes in baptism by immersion of believers, I find that a very Catholic way of thinking. (laughs) When I have someone from an evangelical world, a Baptist world, tells me, well, you know, I, don't, I know they're them, but they were baptized. And I'm like, well, what does that mean? Because I have plenty of friends who are Catholic who think their salvation rests in the fact that they were baptized as an infant. And we would all say, oh, no, 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 no. Infant baptism doesn't mean anything. But evidently, if we plunge them underneath that water and pull them back out, that's a whole different thing. <laughs> baptism is an important event in our life. It is the mark, or it is the circumcision, in essence, of the Christian, of the one who is a father of Christ. And it's an important spiritual event that marks our new birth in Christ. It is an act of obedience. And it doesn't save us. As I said many times, it doesn't even really cleanse us because most of the time the baptism water is dirty. If you're at Miranda, it's filthy. Even here in our nice one, Joe had to put Clorox in it the day before because it was starting to get slimy. And I was worried about if you put Clorox and I put them under and bring them back out, is their hair going to become a platinum blonde? (laughs) These are important questions we must ask when we are embarking on new adventures. I don't want a bunch of people to come back and say, look what you did to my hair. Yeah, but you're saved. What about church attendance? What about, I was saved at VBS when I was 10, but I don't live like a Christian anymore. Is it not possible for us to be just as guilty of the Jews of thinking there are outward things that we do, and we think that saves us, instead of realizing it is the outward is simply a representation of the inward? Our faith in our, our theology, if I can, I don't like using that term a lot, but on Wednesday night crowd I don't mind using it because most of y'all are pretty sharp, most of you, ought to move us to a place we understand that it is the inward, it is the inward expression of Christ that is the ultimate litmus test or understanding of whether or not we're a follower. The outward things we do are symbolic are their acts of obedience that represent a fundamental inward change of our life. So you go back to chapter 1 verse 17 that says the righteous person lives by faith. The person that is justified is a faith liver. They live that way. There has been this inward transformation. In fact, to be justified simply means that what God sees when he looks at us, is he sees someone who has been made right by such transformation, not that they have done, but that Christ has done. If you believe it is the baptism that saves you, the church attendance that saves you, the, the, anything else that saves you, then you have not been justified in the eyes of God because you're relying on things we do. Think about this. I was, I was, uh, I say this tongue in cheek, and maybe some truth. I was baptized when I was nine. And the church I grew up in, it's a good church. I love it. I went back to serve in it. The wonderful people. I'm friends with all of them. But the 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 pastor who's gone on, uh, you know, in life. I look back and I reflect on him as a pastor. I'm like, Lord, that guy was not a very good pastor. Everybody lo- loved him and all that. I'm just, i now that I have been a pastor a long time, I can sit in judgment on other pastors. It's a great place to be. And so I asked this question. If the guy who baptized me wasn't saved, does my baptism count? Think about it. If, my, if the guy didn't, who baptized me wasn't saved, does my baptism, am I good to go? Now, a couple of times, to be honest, I snuck into a Baptist street when no one's around with water and I just baptized myself to make sure. Obviously, it, 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 I would, I'm not going to say it doesn't matter. It, it doesn't matter. Guys. The point simply is this. I am saved because of what Christ is doing in my life. Now, what Paul is saying to these folks is you've got to understand the Christian faith properly. It's not about who keeps the law and who doesn't. Though keeping the law is important. It's not that. It's not about who's circumcised and who isn't. It's not that that's not important. It's not that those things aren't important. It's that those things represent something else that has occurred. And that's what's important. So he comes to this discussion in chapter 3. What then, someone might ask, advantage has the Jew? What's the benefit of circumcision? Why do all that? Well, Paul's Jewish, so it mattered to him a little bit. Well, it's great in every respect. First of all, they were entrusted with the oracles or the teachings of God. So the Jews were the people God gave the truth to. What then? If some did not believe, their unbelief will not nullify the faithfulness of God, will it? So they were entrusted with the law, but some of them didn't believe. They didn't, they didn't do what was supposed to be done. Paul, now in verse 4 it says, may it never be. It's, I can't stress to you in English enough Exactly the emphatic nature of the Greek. You know, from Texas, we might use a few adjectives along the way, like you know, no cotton picking way. Is that true? You know, what else I said, he says it, it is by no means is that true. It never nullifies the faithfulness of God. Let God be found true, and every man found a liar. God is still true. If everyone who claims to be a follower of God is not a follower of God, it's still true. Listen, I tell folks, just because you see people who don't act like Christians doesn't mean that Christ isn't truly the Savior of the world. And I deal with stuff sometimes online and people start saying, oh, you Christians, I'm saying, look, I don't know your situation. I can't tell you your situation. I don't know who you've encountered, but I know this. Jesus Christ is the Lord of all. Whether you believe it or not doesn't make any difference in whether that statement's true. He is Lord even if you deny him. And so you, you can't nullify the faithfulness of God. He said you may be, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you're judge. Talking about God. But if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? In other words, so you can say, okay, if that's true and God is still faithful and God is still righteous, even if we're unrighteous, then our unrighteousness may demonstrate the faithfulness of God. Then God who inflicts wrath is not unrighteous, is he? I'm speaking, he says, in human terms. Is God unrighteous? No. He is always righteous. So, Paul says, may it never be. Otherwise, how will God judge the world? He's not unrighteous, he's always righteous. So, here's the question, here's the thing. If through my lie, then, what the, 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 Paul, Paul is saying is if I'm unrighteous, God is righteous, and he will show that he is righteous through my unrighteousness. That's the thing. God is still righteous, he will judge in righteousness, even though I'm unrighteous. So, Paul says this he's making up an argument someone else has. If through my lie the truth of God is to abound in his glory, why am I still being judged a sinner? In other words, if God's righteousness and glory is seen in my sin and unrighteousness, then why am I judged a sinner? If my sin is showing how good God is, if my sin shows how righteous God is, then why, why am I ever condemned as a sinner? In fact, this is what he says. And what not say, as some slanderous reporter claim that we do, let us do evil that good may come. So the, the idea would be, the more evil I do, the more righteous God is. Therefore, my evil is actually good. That is a prevailing thought in the world today. There are people who believe and practice an idea of grace that says, the more I sin, the more God's grace is demonstrated. I had a friend, a girl I grew up with, and just a wonderful Christian woman. And, you know, married, you know, happily. Um, had three great daughters and known her for a long time. And, and uh, about seven, eight years ago, her husband pulled that stunt and he left her. Because there someone else. And his comment was, well, you know, if it's wrong, still, because I'm covered by grace, God will still be glorified. And one of our friends told me that account before she did. I was just like, oh, man, that's evil. It don't work that way. Look what Paul says in chapter 8. Here's what he says. Their condemnation is just. Now, you think just for a moment. it have been several weeks doing this, talking about sin. The Gentiles, Jews, why are we all... You know, held in, in judgment to Gentiles because that which is, they do that which they know is right. I mean, they know what is right and they sin against it. They sin against the Creator. They sin against, you know, what is normal, you know, all that stuff. Jews have the law, they have circumcision, they're, they're held accountable for all that. Some can simply say, well, if God is a God of grace, and it it's by grace that we're saved, and in the midst of our sin, in the midst of our failings, God is glorified because God shows Himself gracious. Well, maybe we could argue that God is being unjust by punishing those who are in sin against him. When in truth being known that all of us are in sin against God to some degree, and God saves some by his grace through faith, well, aren't all of us really showing the glory and majesty of God? Shouldn't we all be considered, really, in essence, good then? It's kind of an Alice in Wonderland mindset, up is down, down is up. Now, this left pop Paul says their condemnation is just. I'll put it to you this way. When they're in hell, they'll understand why. You cannot twist the holiness of God. I'm preaching on the holiness of God Sunday. You cannot take and twist the holiness of God to fit your corrupt understanding. You can't take what is holy, who is holy, God, and bring him down to a corrupted, common, profane, twisted viewpoint, which is ours. I say this all the time. The basic sin of man is to be the God of our own lives. We are horrible gods and goddesses, I guess. We're horrible. We are twisted, corrupted, common, profane, empty deviant, lecherous people to in any way take the holy, glorious God and to bring him down in any way to our level is a justification in and of itself for our condemnation. And by the way, we're all guilty of it until Christ saves us. So we go back to what Paul says. The righteous person. The just lives by faith and gives evidence of a transformed life. And if you don't give evidence of a transformed life you have not experienced that transformation. If you live a life and there is no evidence of Christian faith of Christ calling you faith no matter what you've done, no matter what you say No matter what's occurred in the past, as far as an act, no matter how much your mama prayed for you, none of that will matter to God. Your condemnation is just. God will be shown righteous. Questions or comments that you may have, be happy to answer them. And I'll try to repeat the question. I have had a request that I repeat the question. I'll try to repeat them. Yes, sir. person was 10 years old or they were 30 years old and for whatever reason they were baptized. And so if they approached you and said, Pastor, layperson, whatever, uh, have I been scripturally baptized, and what would your response be? So when someone uh, at 30, they're tied to 10, they were at 30 and they've asked if they've been scripturally baptized, they respond, and we dealt with that the other day. Joe, you dealt with that? What we tell folks is simply this. We go back to the baptism. Were you a follower of Christ when you were baptized? Yes. Uh, were you baptized by immersion? Yes. Was the baptism a symbolic or, or was it purely symbolic? The answer is yes. If, 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 if something happened like they weren't a Christian or they weren't immersed or they believed that the baptism was regenerate or those that saved them or washed away sin then we would say your baptism wasn't a scriptural baptism. Most of the time, because they're bad people we deal with, are usually baptized in a Baptist or Evangelical church or a Bible church, same thing. They meet that. Now, sometimes we'll get people who were baptized in another denomination, and we will rebaptize them because they did not have what we would call your term a scriptural baptism. So, but this, I've had people say, I want to be baptized, and I'm like, no, it's a one-time thing. I'm not redoing it. If, unless it meets certain criteria, but almost always it doesn't. And for the most part, we work. The better solution is to work through the process of helping them understand what's going on in their life. So too often pastors say, yeah, we'll just rebaptize you. It's the easiest thing to do. We'll make sure you get it right this time. No, what you do is you work through their life and understand why there is conflict. Deal with that conflict or the doubts and get them on the right path. Instead of, it's like saying, I'm just going to paint over you know, I got a hole in the wall. We'll just throw some paint over it and cover it or something. You know, you deal with the problem. You don't just throw paint over it. In that sense, sometimes we we get confused with the issue of calling or tying that into once once they've you know not saving falling from grace. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you know, Lord saves you. You know, and that's and that's and that's good enough. And baptism's the outward sign of it. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sorry. Most uh, Baptists come to salvation as a child. Most Baptists come to salvation as a child. Children. Children, most people, period, come to salvation as child. To this day, 80, sometimes I've seen high 90, but I think it's closer to 80. 80% of people who become a follower of Christ do so before the age of 18. Or 19. How much does, 19. does that child need such that their salvation? How much understanding do they need? That's a good question. Uh, anybody want to answer that on the staff? Brian, Brian wants to answer. Oh, Brian will love. If Brian answers it, we'll be here 30 minutes. Um, <laughs> they need just enough. I, let me do this. At, at, at the Thief on the Cross, I, and I think I'm preaching on that sometime next year, the Thief on the Cross uh said you know remember me when you come into this kingdom and jesus said today you'll be with me in paradise and i've said many times that's the worst faith i have ever seen he did nothing it's the w- i don't even know if jesus i don't even know if he knew jesus was truly god in the flesh he just said this man's done nothing wrong he knew he was dying he was knew he, he knew he was the messiah he knew that he had no idea what that meant there's no indication he understood. I mean, he was only across from him for three hours. It's not like they had a doctrinal discussion. He just saw what Christ did, said, remember me. Jesus said, today you'll be with me in the paradise. Jesus evidently thought he had enough faith. I have said many times, that's the worst faith I've ever seen. It was just enough. And it's what I would always tell folks is with the child, we take the child where they are developmentally. So if, if you know, a child came and dealt with Joe who was six, And Joe talked to him, and that child knocked it off the charts. We've had other children come at 9 or 10, and they just don't seem to grasp it. All we're looking for is this. Do they understand in their life that they are a sinner who cannot save themselves? Do they understand what sin fundamentally is? And are they making a commitment of their own volition to give their life to Christ Forever And do they understand that baptism doesn't save them and certain things don't save them? So all we're looking for is the the most basic type of faith that Christ requires. And now we're going to have to develop them and grow them and teach them. We know all that. But at the moment that we're considering whether or not they're saved, we want to know do they understand to the best of their cognitive ability that they are committing their life to Christ moving from a place of sinfulness... Though whether a child is truly lost or not is another issue. To a place of faith, that's what we look for. Does that help? Yeah. Yes, that helps. Uh, the Baptists have as doctrine the security of the believer. Yes. And at that young age, do they have that security? Yes. This is the security of the believer, which is derived, which is, a, is derived from the concept of of the of. Uh, The the perseverance of the saint. We're saved forever. Security of the believer. If it's legitimately true, yes. Now, this is always the issue. Sometimes we're guilty of saying those kids are saved and baptizing them and never developing them, and they go off and live a life of a reprobate, of of the prodigal, and we keep waiting for them to come back, and we don't think they do. So there's a lot of issues in that. Uh, But I will simply say this. If God determined... God saved them. They're saved forever. At some point in their life, they're going to give evidence of that, though. It may not be when we want them to. Some point, they're coming around to it. Bob? We had a little girl come forward one morning. She was four years old. Yeah? Pastor talked with her, prayed with her, closed the invitation. Yeah. He picked her up, stood her up on the platform, and called her by name and said, "What are you going to do when the Satan comes knocking at your heart's door, asking you to do something bad?" bad. She didn't bat an eye. She looked him right straight in the eye and said, "I'm going to ask Jesus to answer the door." Yeah. 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 I don't know what to tell you, brother. I'm 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 I'm, gonna, I'm, a, I'm the eternal skeptic on that. I'm a four-year-old at that. that mm, yeah, I don't know about that. Maybe uh, Troy was four the first time he was saved. Uh, yeah, I can ask kids a lot. Of, I can go pull those kids out of a wonder right now, and I I can I can lead any child to salvation to say all the words. I can get any child to say all the right words. I spend most of my time trying to get them. Not to say the right stuff. When I'm helping their child, I am trying to convince them they're not saved. That's what I do. If you've ever brought your child to me, you know what I'm saying. Anybody else have a question? God bless you. We'll see you later. Oh, okay, good. Let's raise you, let your hand. Give have a thumbs up because you were going to give me that. You had three last week and that was your monthly quota.